When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When I was 30 years old, my roommate and dear friend, John Gardner Brent, who possessed more paper of significance than anybody on earth, uh, got me to lie down on the floor of our apartment and he would proceed to empty foot lockers of meaningful paper on top of me one by one until I was totally covered by one would suspect garbage, except no, every piece of paper was significant. And I could just grab a piece and stick it in this little opaque projector and shoot it up on the ceiling. And I would see all the the wonders of our, our lives throughout decades. And I just laid there and did that. And I think I stopped for food every 12 hours and drank every hour. I just kept throwing stuff on the ceiling and going, oh my God. And when I went on the road with Hugh Romney and his electric toothpick, I did not have the the huge, what do you call it, uh, arsenal of tree flesh. (laughs) That's gravy ease for paper, by the way. (laughs) Uh, arsenal of tree flesh that was extraordinary because then I could just reach out and grab anything and shoot it up on the ceiling and it was meaningful no matter what the tiniest scrap and I also complimented it with a bag of bubbles from comic books and uh, the funnies I would put the weird photos in one bag and the bubbles in another bag and get a volunteer from the audience We would shoot up a piece of paper on the wall, and then they would grab a couple of bubbles with rubber cement and stick them on the piece of paper to see what the characters on the paper were saying to each other. Sounds like Wavy, inspired by his best friend John Brent, was making what today we call memes. Now remember, this story takes place in the early 1960s, way before computers, Photoshop, and apps made for easy photo manipulation. Wavy's a DIY memes pioneer. Of course. And if it was really amazing, people would cry cream, and it was phenomenal. And if it got beyond phenomenal, if it was cream, 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 we would uh, publish it that week in the L.A. Free Press. (laughs) And I later took it on the road. It was called Hugh Romney and his Electric Toothpick. I toured with this thing, believe it or not. The open road at last, ready to go places. And I I traveled uh, hither and yon doing that until I didn't. (laughs) And then I did something else, which I can't remember. 
Welcome to American Prankster, the fascinatingly historic, rivetingly weird, and hilarious life story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. Who is Matt? Welcome. Matt Welcome is a character that I evolved over the decades. Uh, I used to do it laying in doorways. <laughs> Hello, I'm Matt Welcome. I'd like to make you welcome. Do you feel welcome? We have ways to make you welcome. Welcome to the Comedy History episode. We are headed to the epicenter of the birth of San Francisco's famed counterculture. Not the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, but North Beach, where the Bohemians hung out before the hate. North Beach is home to the San Francisco Art Institute and City Lights Bookstore, beacons for innovative, outspoken artists like writers Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. It's the early 1960s, and intellectuals and artists flock to San Francisco's North Beach neighborhood to enjoy a new form of theater. Improv comedy at the Committee Theater, where Wavy landed in late 1963, early 64. How did you get from New York and touring to be part of this improv comedy troupe in San Francisco? Well... I was deeply involved in all things improvisational and under the great tutelage of Viola Spolin, who wrote a book called Improvisation for the Theater, which if you're taking notes, that's a good one. I think that the creative act must transform the one who is in it. Not what he produces, but what happens to him or her. That's Viola Spolin, who created theater games leading to the evolution of improvisational comedy, which transformed entertainment, and our friend Hugh Romney. It was just a, a natural adventure to, uh, to go to California. I love you, California. You're the state that welcomes all. I love you. And that's where uh, I began to read my poetry in the West Coast coffee houses. What was Hugh Romney's act in the coffee house? Well, here's original Mary prankster Denise Kaufman of the rock band Ace of Cups on seeing Hugh Romney perform in San Francisco circa 1964. First time I saw Hugh Romney was, I think I was still in high school or my end of high school or maybe in, in the summer between high school and starting UC Berkeley. But there was a coffee house on Grant Avenue north of Broadway uh, in San Francisco called Coffee and Confusion. It's a little, very small, little hole-in-the-wall coffee house. And I used to go there all the time and I used to play there sometimes. So I was there one night and on the little stage in the front of the room, there was this guy that I had never seen before doing some kind of monologue that I had missed because I walked in at a certain point. But at that point, he was lighting matches and putting them, turning his, he was sitting on a, like a, a stool, but he stood up, lit matches and put them by his asshole and was lighting farts and they were flaming. So that was something I'd never seen or considered before. And uh, on Broadway, there was the committee and they were doing a New York run and keeping the San Francisco company but they needed more people. So I ended up uh, auditioning for that and becoming a member of the company. What is the committee? The committee is an improvisational theater that spun out of Second City to the Bay Area. Here's an excerpt from the trailer for the documentary currently in production, The Committee, The Secret History of American Comedy. This clip features committee co-founder and director Alan Meyerson and company members Carl Gottlieb, Ed Greenberg, and Bill Matthew. At the time, 622 Broadway 
was an Italian club called the Bocce Ball. We had assumed this was going to be a summer gig. You know, we opened in April. We figured if we could get through Labor Day, it was a long job. It was a really amazing collection of really smart people at a time in history where things were really changing fast. And the committee was a voice of that change. The committee didn't dabble in politics. It had a political base from the first day it opened. I came out to the committee and an entirely new sensibility. It was political theater. It was fucking a dangerous. There was a bohemian life in the city that predated us, the beatniks and the poets, and we could only contribute to it and, and be nourished by it, and as it turned out, gave back. So my mom was part of the committee scene, working as their secretary and married to committee company member Howard Hessman, who coincidentally died the same week I was editing this episode. My mom was friends with young committee member Hugh Romney. So I called her for more info. It was 1963 and a half or four. It was an ensemble of artists, but it was about comedy and it was about improvisation, which was a new theater thing of being there immediately at that moment. And if you're not there at that moment, you miss the moment. And the Vietnam War was going like crazy. Birth control had just begun the year before. If you got in trouble, you were fucked. I was one of those fuckies. Everything was a dark secret. There was a lot of darkness. We were afraid we were going to be blown up any moment. <laughs> so a good way out of it was to be in the moment with theater games because that got you. It was art. It's like painting. It gets you out of the fear and into the moment. So it was very powerful. I wanted more details about the committee, so I called my friend Sam Shaw, improv historian and co-producer of the committee documentary film and production. So Alan Meyerson and his uh, wife Irene uh, moved to San Francisco to form their own Second City-style theater called The Committee, and that was in 63. Uh, in 64, they took the original company to New York, did a Broadway run, and then they had to cast, they had to create a placeholder cast to keep the fires burning in San Francisco. That's when they cast Wavy and a few other folks. Um, and then John Brent came a couple months after that. So Wavy's intersection with the committee lasted about a year um, in 64, or uh, maybe six months, 60, fall of 64 um, to early 65. And John Brent became my roommate, which was a life changer for me as he was a great genius. John Brent, a committee company member and one of the most influential people in Wavy's life. John Brent is uh, possibly uh, the most amazing person I've ever known in my life, and many people would say the same. John Brent, what everybody loves. John yeah. Gardner Brent, one of the great wits of our age. Would you say he was a great influence on you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. John, <laughs> come back. I miss you so. So who was this great genius, John Brent, who influenced our hero, Wavy Gravy? I dug in to find out. Here's improv historian Sam Shaw. He was kind of like the template for the, the hipster comic improviser from the early 60s. Everybody was inspired by John Brent. I've got a quote from Alan Meyerson. Alan Meyerson is the American film and TV director who co-founded the Committee Theater with his then-wife. 
Allen's hundreds of TV directing credits include Friends, Laverne and Shirley, News Radio, Ellen, and many more. You'll hear him mentioned as Allen or Meyerson throughout the episode. He says, Dell close. Dell wanted to be the single hippest human being, but John Brent was on the natch. I mentioned Dell close in the last episode. He's arguably the most famous historic American improviser, known for writing the comedian's Bible, Truth in Comedy, and inventing the Herald, a long-form improv game played by advanced improv nerds everywhere. Now back to Sam and John Brent. He was, like, really handsome. He's kind of movie star handsome, really stylish. We've got footage of the committee on the road. And they're on, when they're on the road, they're all ragged. They're all hairy and gross. And John Brent's just got his ascot. He's got his blazer just put together. And he was a really handsome dude. And he was also at, at the committee in charge of their improv workshops. So for a lot of people in San Francisco... They entered the committee scene through John Brent's workshop, so he was there, the face of the committee to a lot of people. And so I think that kind of lent this kind of uber-hip vibe to their whole enterprise. Back to Wavy. John Brent, he was in Second City in Chicago, and then in the committee in San Francisco, where we became uh, roommates. We blushed beautifully. Is a line, I believe, from Stranger in a Strange Land, which is a, an amazing book about this Martian. <laughs> now, to understand the full picture of John Brent, I reached out to his probable son, Jeremy Paws, who didn't grow up with his probable biological dad. Remember, there was a lot of free love amongst the counterculture. So Jeremy Paws didn't have too many stories about John, but he did have one gem about his probable dad that says it all. Oh, yeah. And Bodie Bodie told me a story about how he and his dad and my dad were on an elevator. I forget where. And um, John Belushi got on the elevator and knelt down and kissed my dad's feet, which was pretty cool, right? Weird, but very John Belushi. John Belushi, born in 1949, died of an overdose in 1982, was an original Saturday Night Live cast member, half of the Blues Brothers, and one of the most beloved American comedians to ever exist. John Belushi worshipped John Brent. Back to my mom and her eyewitness account of John Brent. And the thing about John, he had this charisma that was one of these people that you have to see them in real to feel their charisma, but he would have electricity over the audience. He would have a connection and nobody could take their eyes off of him because he was magical. He would transform the audience into another being and he into another being. He would mesmerize audiences. He would hypnotize them. He was an evangelical preacher. This is the Reverend George Thank you, congregation. Now, friends, get off my road, boy. That's a clip from 1965 of John Brandt as the evangelical preacher, long before anyone else was doing satire about religion. Here's my mom again. One of the skits that John Brent was working on was a TV game show, and he was the host. The other actor who came in, a contestant. Okay, so the contestant, his deal was he had to show how much he wanted something before the game show host would give it to him. John Brent would get the actors to do insane things, you know, groveling. (laughs) 
groveling for refrigerators, groveling for just everyday stuff like appliances. <laughs> John Brent would have the whole audience watching his every movement, and the words would just come out of his mouth, and he would, I mean, they would have done anything for him. They would have walked into the sea. Phenomenal to see because the full house was 300, so there's always 200 people there because it was enormously popular in the Bay Area. Everybody came to the theater to hang out, all the liberals, because we wanted to end the war, and that's where all the liberals and the gay people and the artists, everybody came there from L.A. People would come up, the casting directors, the artists, you know, Rob Reiner and all those guys would come up and hang out. People from New York, it was a theater with a um, bar, and everybody could come and drink and hang out and, and go in and see comedy. So John Brent and Del Cliffs, they knew how to do this because they'd been taught. They brought along here because he was like an acolyte of theirs. He was their student. There was a lot of uh, watching old Charlie Chaplin movies and Max Sennett and stuff like that to learn shticks. They called them shticks. <laughs> You got a stick. I got a stick. Hugh Romney was like one big feeling human being. And so he could relate to John Brent because John Brent was a seething human being, seething with heart, seething with hiding his pain because you, you had to be hiding your this horrible pain, you know, of being on earth. But he was so gifted. He, you know, words fell out of his mouth like colored ribbon. Hugh Romney was with John Brent because they were healing through comedy. Because if you laugh, you're healed, right? Here's original Mary prankster Denise Kaufman of the rock band Ace of Cups again with her memory of seeing John Brent and Hugh Romney on New Year's Eve 1964 at the committee. Side note, don't worry if you don't know who the Mary pranksters are. We'll get into them in the next episode. New Year's Eve at the committee, and the committee was doing a a special show and one of the bits that was in the show was John Brent it was a, a duo of John Brent and Hugh Romney doing this bit about this fellow called Justin Time John Brent was a guy on a standing on a bridge about to commit suicide in the bit and he was like life has nothing to offer me I've done it all I've seen it all and so he was about to jump off the bridge and then who shows up is Hugh who is his character just in time and he opens up his coat and he says I have something you've never tried don't you know don't jump right I have something you've never tried so what is that he goes moments and he like he opens up his coat and he pulls out and moments and it's moments to be present in moments like glistening present moments and the way he talks about it and the way it came off it was just so astounding that literally I couldn't talk for about a day and a half my mind was blown and what was it like to watch Hugh Romney at work on the committee stage just funny. He was a student then, but he was very funny. Do you remember doing a sketch where you were a newscaster commenting on the Mississippi race riots and the Mississippi Freedom Summer? I don't remember the race riot part, but I do remember 
doing something with LBJ and a lot of guns. <laughs> oh, we're talking like 50 years ago or something, Tesla. <laughs> Back to Sam Shaw about Wavy's hero, John Brent. John Brent was hip without trying. He was super intelligent. And he was in that really fascinating nexus of um, the beat poetry gaslight scene and Second City. So he was a beat poet improviser in kind of a stand-up in that kind of early stand-up days pre-Lenny Bruce where Wavy was a stand-up Del Close was a stand-up and, and John Brent was a stand-up in that we're doing solo comedy. Sometimes it's stories, not necessarily jokes, but it's just like solo pieces, like Wavy would wear the meat suit. Uh, and I had a, a jacket made of meat, like 15 years later, was copied by Lady Gaga, but excuse me, I was there first. Who can forget the raw meat she wore to an award show last year? The moral and ethical and political implication of that outfit was far beyond what most people think, which is, ill. The ham yeah. would not hold. The ham would not hold. We had to use a lot of salami. And it was uh, on top of a madras uh, sport coat. So we sewed all the stuff on. In the afternoon, everybody got a lot of bologna and salami and safety pins. And safety pins on his outfit. All his legs and his arms and, you know, in his neck. And then he, he just told stories in a meat suit. <laughs> to get to the bone of the meat suit, I called my mom's friend, former committee company member Larry Hankin, on his memories of Wavy and the meat suit. Now, you've seen Larry Hankin in a million things, but he's best known as the junkyard guy in Breaking Bad, Carl in the movie Billy Madison, and fake Kramer in Seinfeld. Here's Larry Hankin. And he wasn't Wavy Gravy yet. He was still Hugh Romney, and he was just in another one of the committee, and he was really good and really funny. And uh, one day he just decided to do a meat suit. What, what, what do you call them? Uh, uh, sandwich meats. It was that, you know, the square things and the packages, little plastic packages of 10 or 15 salami sandwich meats. Salami, bologna, chicken, and ham. And he wore it. They kept it in the refrigerator. He wore it for about a week or two, it lasted. But, you know, the stuff started to fall off. Pieces were hanging off. And it's just like, and it, but he was, you know, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, with the committee. And, and, and then also people every once in a while, but very rarely, but every once in a while, somebody would rip and eat it. Uh, so that's all I remember about uh, Hugh, because he was on a different wavelength. He was way, uh, he was on a higher level, I think. Than he, was, he was on a different level. Hmm. I would just watch him in awe, but... It was like, you know, getting too close to the sun. <laughs> I was 10 feet from Lady Gaga, and I was shy. And it was re I really feel stupid that I was shy, because we could have discussed our, our meat jackets together, you know? Hugh, in the afternoons, I said, what do you do in the afternoons when you're not rehearsing and because they rehearse like three days a week. And he said, I go to the hospital and I hang out with the autistic children. And and from then on, I, I knew that Hugh Romney had a pure heart, you know, really pure. He was into healing, you know, children. 
I was on a ride with Hugh to L.A., and there was like four or five of us in the car. This was like in 67, 66 or 67, and he, so we stopped at this little grocery store to get drinks, and um, we went to the door, and it was open. The padlock wasn't closed, but there was nobody in it, and Hugh would not take anything. So we all got back in the car and went to another store that was open. That's how pure he was. And then another one that we did, we covered a jacket made of matzah, uh, like a blazer. And on the pocket was the uh, heraldry that was on the matzah package that we took the uh, emblem off of and stuck it on the sport coat. But you could not wear this thing. It would crumble and fall off. It was only one-dimensional. But it looked good uh, up against the wall, and we could stick it on a piece of fabric or a piece of cardboard, and it would stay firm. Did you have a character name who wore this matzah blazer or the meat my, suit? My jacket made of meat I wore. Odetta ate my elbow. My, did I have a meat identity? I don't, I don't remember this. Here's improv historian Sam Shaw again. Meyerson, who's the director of the committee, Meyerson thinks that Dell's arrival, Dell Close's arrival to the committee in 67 was greased by Wavy and John Brent. So Alan Meyerson had early relationship with Dell and there was some tension and some kind of professional rivalry there. Um, but kind of on the word of Wavy and John Brent, he allowed Dell to, to join up with the committee in 67. What are your memories of Dell Close? Um, she also was just like perfect. He could just do any skit and it would be hysterically funny. John Brent wasn't a famous person then. Neither was Dale. Neither was Wavy. Nobody was. They were nobodies. <laughs> they were only there for a couple of years. They had money, right? So they got smacked. So they, they would get too high to come to work. Did Hugh Romney take smack? No, I don't think so. You know, the other thing is that they were all very private about their private lives or their private pains. I remember Hugh living in a motel by the Cow Palace. That's where he lived, in a motel. Now, the Cow Palace is a famous indoor arena convention space in Daly City near San Francisco Airport, outside the city, a good 30 to 45 minutes away from North Beach, where the committee theater was located. And he got married to this lady, and she got pregnant, and she didn't really want to have a baby in a motel. And she was straight, so she kept trying to run away from him, and she finally did. And she came to my house, and she said, don't tell Hugh I'm here, promise. So he called, of course, right at that very second. And I had to tell him I didn't know where she was. And then she ran, she ran away, this pregnant girl, to like Tennessee or something. And she had modeled for Avedon, Richard Avedon in New York, but somehow she ended up in the South. But nobody heard from her forever. And she would send packages to the baby and she would like demolish them. And then, no, so he didn't get to like be with his own child. So that's probably why he has so many children now, hundreds of camp children. And wouldn't it be neat if the people that you meet had shoes upon their feet and something to eat. And wouldn't it be fine now if all humankind had shelter? 
It was a brotherhood. There wasn't girls then doing much. They were tolerated if they cooked. <laughs> no, but John wasn't like that. He he was really nice. He would he would have me making magical jewelry for his and he was too magical jewelry for their their magical needs. They were into magic. And Alastair Crowley. Alastair Crowley, born in 1875 and died in 1947, was a British character whose titles included occultist, poet, magician, prophet, novelist, social critic, bisexual, recreational drug user, and mountaineer. He founded an esoteric religion called Thelema, which is a rabbit hole we're not going down today. Now, in the early 1900s, Alastair Crowley popularized tarot cards, seances, and other esoteric theatrical magic. So my mom told me this incredible story that she remembers about you guys, and I want to know if you remember it. Now, along with being the secretary for the committee, my mom was also a jeweler for the counterculture, making all sorts of psychedelic bling. She was a jeweler, and she remembers welding a Tibetan magic wand with you. I'm trying to remember what it was exactly. It was a a silver dollars that we melted down, the silver dollars, and cast them into the magic wand. It's whatever we melted down the silver dollars and poured it into a a mold. Oh, using the the lost wax method, which dentists use to make teeth. That was Dr. Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, Wavy's dentist. That's Wavy, because Dr. Payne made us this wax replica of a Tibetan Georgi, it's called, you know, thunder, it calls the thunder gods. And that was what we cast in the back back room of North Point when I had my studio there. And that's when we put it together, it jumped together. The uh, incising was all in the right place and then wavy fainted. Oh, a dorji, a Tibetan lamic scepter. And it was sterling silver, the first one ever in existence. Yeah, silver dollars that we melted down to make this dorji. And I guess it was her that we got to do it. And then... This amazing thing. I took it out to the desert and it was eaten by lightning. (laughs) And there was like a, you know, like the shadows that existed in Hiroshima after the bomb frozen. That's what the dorji was on the, uh, on this rock where we had left it. Uh, It got eaten by cosmic fire. So as we learned a few episodes ago, a signature of beatniks in the counterculture is dabbling in Eastern religion. And never one to pussyfoot around, Wavy went right to the center of Tibetan ritualism. Dorji in Tibetan, Vajra in Hindi, is considered one of the most powerful weapons in the universe and represents firmness of spirit and spiritual power, symbolized by the properties of a diamond for indestructibility and a thunderbolt for irresistible force certainly took me a long time to get those silver dollars together <laughs> and then to get them made into a, a dorje i guess that i that was your who your aunt my mommy your mommy did it yeah and then i had the only sterling silver dorje which is a tibetan lamic scepter designed to reflect the blue essence of the life force into your center i just took it out there and left it on a rock it came back And it was eaten by lightning. Strange, but true. (laughs) Can you share about the Goon King Brothers Dimensional Cremo? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble now. 
It's 1964. The Civil Rights Act is signed into law by LBJ. Martin Luther King Jr. receives the Nobel Peace Prize. The Vietnam War is raging. And LSD, legal in the U.S. until 1966, is being crafted at Stanford University and passed out to the artists of North Beach. Tell me about your handbag collection. Your trout and chicken and whatever else you have, your briefcases. Oh, God, how do you know about that? I don't, I barely know about it. (laughs) Well, I see you walking around with the purses, different cute purses. Oh, yeah. Actually, it was lunch boxes. That's because uh, John Brent and I were uh, doing things that I shouldn't really talk about or I'll get in trouble with John. But anyhow, and our, our business was called Goon King Brothers Dimensional Cremo. Mini flashback. Can you share about the Goon King Brothers Dimensional Cremo? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble now. Wavy shrugs towards the fun. His code name was Rudy Kloptik, and I was Al Denti, which I got off a Butoni wrapper, which means to the tooth, Al Dente. But just call me Al. Goon King Brothers Dimensional Cremo. That was it's just a name that uh, John Brent and I ca- came up for our cooperation of distribution of psychedelic substances. And we had calling cards made up, which on the front side said Goon King Brothers Dimensional Cremo, and on the back side was either Al Denti or Rudy Kloptik. Al Denti, one of my great identities. And we were uh, purveyors of psychedelic substances. I would do this as al dente. Okay, al dente. This is hilarious to me and anyone who grew up at Camp One Rainbow, where we all knew al dente as Uncle Al the Kitty's pal, the host of the Tornado of Talent, the camp variety show. It's great to know al dente's origin story. Rudy Kloptik, he mailed stuff to the East Coast inside of birds. He would take fake birds and cut them open and put dope inside them and sew them up again and mail them to, like to Woodstock. But was it Owlsley acid? Yes, of course. It was all Owlsley. Now, along with Stanford LSD, the evolving counterculture was bursting with acid manufactured by Owlsley Stanley, a young chemist who became the sound engineer for the Grateful Dead and a catalyst for the famous acid tests, which are coming in the next episode. So there's a lot of LSD in San Francisco at this time. And Owlsley acid is famous amongst the counterculture. And trivia tidbit, Owlsley's children later attended Wavy's Camp Winter Rainbow with me and all the other offspring of the psychedelic pioneers. John used to handle the stuff in the mail, and I would handle the distribution on the street in North Beach. And uh, I would finish work at the committee, and then I would take my lunchbox full of naughty stuff over to uh, Grant Avenue and this uh, brothel uh, that was run by the great Margot St. James. Artist, beatnik, woman of the night, Margot St. James is San Francisco's most famous sex rights activist who advocated for the decriminalization of prostitution. Among her activist work, Margot St. James founded a sex workers' rights group called Coyote, Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics. She organized hookers' balls to fund Coyote and co-founded a medical clinic for sex workers. Margot St. James died in 2021. All of her various girls would uh, move my product, which was great. And I just used to lay around and uh, they would give me money and I would give them product. And they would give it to their Johns, you know, for, you know, they weren't interested in it. 
it just making points with the Johns. They weren't into uh, making money off the, the product, which I was. It was delightful because all I had to do was lay around and they'd bring me money. Trivia tidbit. Wavy wasn't the only committee insider doing business with Margot St. James and her girls. Here's my mom's related story. Gary Goodrow's wife and I started a dancing studio. <laughs> we had a whole bunch of hookers as our, as our students. Marco would send her girls to us to learn grace and beauty. <laughs> Who's Gary Goodrow? Goodrow was another guy from New York. Was one of the early. He was an early actor that came in and uh, because Alan had called him and said, "I'm doing this thing. Do you want to come and do it?" I mean, he was like an important actor and writer. He wrote, Honey, Don't, what, Where the Kids Shrink in the Garden. That one. You leave the, Don't Leave the Kids Alone. <laughs> Honey, I Shrank the Kids. Gary Goodrow, best known for writing the film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, was a committee company member and member of New York City's Living Theater, where Wavy did the Phantom Cabaret with Tiny Tim, as we heard about in episode three. Remember Goodrow. His name comes up again. Back to Wavy and his psychedelic peddler years at Margot St. James's brothel. There was uh, this one woman of uh, whatever you'd call them that I was enamored with at that time. And she was a Hawaiian. I remember that part. (laughs) We went to see Bob Dylan at the Berkeley Community Theater. He was doing a single, and his uh, road guy was Bobby Newworth. Bobby Newworth was a singer-songwriter record producer who co-wrote the song Mercedes-Benz with Janis Joplin, who was also part of this same social scene. Oh, Lord! Won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. What did we do? We got to certainly see him, and I remember nothing. (laughs) So since then, you've carried unusual handbags? Well, yeah, yeah. See, because I I used to have the the you-know-whats hidden inside the lunchbox in the inner recesses of the thermos, which unscrewed in the thermos part, but there was a space between uh, the thermos stuff, which kept stuff hot or cold, and the interior of the lunchbox. And that's where I put the naughty stuff. This is LSD, peyote, DMT, STP, mescaline, psilocybin, hashish, and marijuana. That's right. Marijuana is also a psychedelic drug. Do you remember your first LSD trip? Oh, that stuff. Yeah, we were uh, moving that product for, actually for Owsley, through my buddy Perry Letterman, who hooked me up with a bunch of it, and then I would sell it and give him money, and he'd give the money to Owsley, and it was uh, delightful. We used to do it every Monday. We, we weren't working at the committee, So uh, we would uh, gobble up that stuff and it could uh, make the floor change color and uh, (laughs) we enjoyed that very much. So that was Monday. (laughs) Mondays. That that went on for quite a while because I was uh, in the committee. It was great fun. And it was for a while with Severn Darden and Del Close and John Brent. My God, they were some amazing, amazingly talented people. Their big three was uh, John Brent, uh, Del Close, and uh, Severin Darden. They don't make them like that anymore. I wish. John Brent, Del Close, and Severin Darden. 
Levy's comedy BFFs, whose names came up all the time in our interviews. Luckily, I could call my mom for Manusha. Was Severin Darden part of the committee? No, but they all knew him and talked about him forever. And I never, so he was part of their brotherhood, their cabal, where they could be, I, I guess they could be vulnerable with each other. I think vulnerable is a good way to describe Hugh Romney's Monday nights in San Francisco. Turns out that's when he founded the first Church of Fun, which we touched upon in episode two. It was was enormous fun. Tell me about the first Church of Fun. Oh my God. I I wonder how how it came to pass. This world religion that I helped to found. What year did you found this world religion? Jesus, God, I don't know. Roughly, Uh, was it the early 60s, the late 60s? Okay, Gary Goodrow was alive. He was something of the first church of fun. Who else? So the committee years, maybe. Yeah, yeah, there were a bunch of committee people involved, yes. So that was the committee. The first church of fun was something that happened on Monday night when the committee was dark and we had access to the venue. The first church of fun evolved around the funny handshake where you placed your butt against another person's butt. So you were butt to butt and you both bent down and looked between your legs and you could look at each other and also crossed your hands in an X and you could talk about all kinds of revolutionary things and there was no way the FBI or the Secret Service could read your lips. We would have special initiations into the first church of fun. Yes, there was lots of uh, rock and roll and pies, uh, cream pies and seltzer bottles. (laughs) Okay, there would be a, a club full of tunes and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff and a back room. And people would line up to go in the back room and they would have their right shoe off and there would be a bow tied around their right big toe to indicate they were prepared to be a funny. And then they would go into the back room and meet, who was it, the Archbishop of, uh, yes, the Archbishop and who else? Uh, The Dope. The Dope was Peter the Sixth and Seven Eighths. That was his hat size or something. And he had epaulets, not a fit, but those things on your shoulder. And he would have candles burning in them, in his epaulets. And you would do the funny handshake, go in the back room, and they told you to kneel and suck the light. And we had this large inflatable light bulb full of laughing gas. And you would suck the light until you were illuminated. (laughs) Then we would snatch the bulb back before it drained. And you would be uh, rolling around on the floor. (laughs) Spasms of hilarity. And at that time, you were given the secret password for that particular time frame. And the question was, what's green and white and hops? You got that? What do you think? Frog with a bowl of mashed potatoes? It's close. It is a frog sandwich to go. That was the the joke for that particular time period. And at that point, you could talk about disabling the telephone company or various uh, chicanery that you would not want anybody to read your lips. That was the first joke of the first church of fun. What a piece of trivia. 
Only a few hundred people on Earth that, that know that. So the 1960s was an era of shifting drug laws in America. As I mentioned, LSD was legal in the U.S. until 1966, but it was frowned upon, as was pot, which was illegal throughout the 60s. Both recreational drugs became increasingly dangerous to possess throughout the late 60s and into the 70s, and by 1986, getting busted with a substantial amount of marijuana could, in fact, bring the death penalty. Hippies use side door indeed. No, but that was the glorious time of excitement that you could get captured and in trouble. So everybody had ingenious stashes. And we had one that was a a tile floor, the big tiles, and the tile had metal on it. And you would approach the tile with a magnet and lift it up and then you could keep your weed in there. And we had another one that was a garbage thing and it was all this garbage and the stash was under the garbage and the garbage was kind of like sort of arranged and and kind of permanently there. It looked like garbage, but it was actually, uh, it was garbage, but it was solidified and it was a trap door and there, there it was. And everybody had uh, ingenious different places to hide their weed. Otherwise, they would get captured and go to jail. Do not pass. Go. Do not collect $200. There you go. Nope. Stash. Did you make the garbage stash? Mm -hmm. The secret garbage Yeah, Yeah, we did that. Myself and John Brent. So you two crafted this garbage stash. Yes, and the magnet one, too. The magnet. That's really quite nice. Yes, he was my best friend at the time, and... uh, (laughs) I miss him desperately. So the consciousness-elevating tools of the counterculture, psychedelics and pot, were more dangerous to possess than to use. And Weavy, like all psychedelic pioneers, still carries the fear of severe government consequences for his recreational bohemian pastimes. It's, it's kind of silly now that you think of everybody's got weed and it's everywhere. But back then, no, you could get in big trouble. And Jahanaro was convinced that I would go to prison. <laughs> and I, I very much enjoyed it. And I would go to Mexico sometimes and get a bunch of it. And then I brought it to New York to this hotel, and people would come to my hotel room and get some. Wavy's got weed. How did you bring it through from Mexico? I had it. Uh, oh yes, it was somehow made to be part of the uh, Ford Pinto that we drove across the border. It just looked like a piece of the car. Ford's new Pinto three-door runabout can surprise you. Up goes the back door, and in goes just about anything you want to carry. I once got stopped on a Golden Gate Bridge in my car with, I think, all the DMT in North America in my trunk. DMT, dimethyltryptamine, is a psychedelic found in plants and animals and is structurally similar to magic mushrooms and is the psychoactive ingredient in ayahuasca, a plant-based psychedelic used ceremonially. Counterculture trivia. Had an enormous amount of alsley acid, and uh, also we had ingested a bunch, and we got pulled over on, I think it was the Golden Gate, it could have been the Bay Bridge, one of those two, and he wanted to see our papers, and Perry is going through the glove, Perry Letterman, great guitar player, and was the middleman between me and Owsley, genius guitar player, and a ute, he was a ute, 
And I said, what are you looking for? I'm looking for registration. Where did you get this car from this drummer named Bob? And I thought, holy shit. And you're going to tell the cop that? And he had uh, dragons coming out of his nose. And, you know, we were altered. And he said, well, yes. And he went out and told the cop that we got the car from this drummer named Al and uh, we don't got no pay and he let us go he let us go for no reason I thought in Rikers whatever it was uh, the slammer for a couple lifetime he let us go it was wow. a, it was a miracle <laughs> a miracle what year was that ish Mm-hmm. Before Woodstock, probably the middle of the early 60s. I hope Mrs. Gravy doesn't get on my gates, because I'm a nice boy. And in 17 years, I'll be 100. Okay, one more DMT story from this era. When Wavy's friend and soon-to-be manager, comedian Lenny Bruce, was visiting San Francisco. Oh, this is when he, he broke his leg, which is kind of like my fault. Lenny was staying at the probably the Swiss American Hotel, and I left a whole bunch of product on his bureau. It was DMT, and a note said, smoke till the jewels fall out of your eyes. And he did, and they did. And he started dancing around the room like Kandinsky. And Eric Miller says, Lenny, cool it. And, oh, yes, he goes through the window, and in midair, he hollers out, man shall rise above the rule. And that's in my book, in the Lenny Bruce chapter. He actually said that in midair. You know, usually power troopers cried Geronimo. I thought instead, man shall rise above the rule. And then, of course, he hit the concrete. Bam. And uh, ended up in the hospital. And I went to see him, and he wanted me to lock up his room at the hotel because it was full of naughty things so he gave me a special note to go do that so I locked up his naughty things and I got to see him because he said he was my uncle so I could get in to see him he was waiting to have his legs set and he smiled down at me from his little bed and he said it was worth it man shall rise above the rule plop and it was worth it oh god it really cut me loose because I I felt so terribly guilty Along with untraditional recreation, Wavy enjoyed traditional leisure activities as well. Who I used to hang out with is this drummer named Philly Joe Jones. That's Philly Joe Jones, who was a child tap dancer who became a bebop drummer for greats like Miles Davis, who declared in his autobiography he would listen for Philly Joe Jones and all other drummers. Philly Joe Jones died in 1985. He had an addiction to uh, cowboy movies. And I was one of the few people that would share his addiction. And there was this one movie theater in North Beach that would be having cowboy movies of terrible cinematic substance, but definitely in the genre. (laughs) And we did so enjoy it. Philly Joe Jones and I, what a thrill that was for me because he was one of the great jazz drummers uh, that ever lived. And I would get to go to cowboy movies with him. Imagine how he liked them apples. He was the only guy I ever took to the movies. The committee. Oh my God. That was great fun. Rooming with John Brent was one of the the best times of my entire life is that uh, was not part of my marital bliss. 
It was wonderful. Thank you, John. I still remember. And I miss you terribly. He actually came up to the hog farm once, which was a big thrill for me. The hog farm, the longest-running commune in America, is the commune Wavy started in the late 1960s after he moved from San Francisco to L.A. He liked it a lot and was touched and moved and let me know that a lot. And I really, really appreciated that. That was probably one of the greatest kudos that I've ever got for what I was up to in my entire life because I I worshipped and revered him, and he was a great genius. The other thing that Brent uh, left as heritage was a uh, recipe for goop for Thanksgiving, which was called muckage, which was a combination of nuts and berries and uh, other ingestibles of great wonder and taste marshmallows toasted into the uh, flow of the cranberries and the nuts and it was extraordinary goop and known as muckage when you line up to get your thanksgiving stuff i've been to thanksgiving at the hog farm and there's about a hundred people in line unfortunately i don't remember the muckage you would get your turkeys and potatoes and the muckage went very quickly but john made it and it was always in brent's memory So what happened to Wavy's best friend, John Brent? Here's improv historian Sam Shaw again. So John Brent was a junkie along the lines of Del Close. I mean, back then they were doing like all the drugs. And there's a bit of a a tragic situation because the committee had a young actor named Chris Ross, who was like a, a genius and was kind of really on the rise and... You know, he was like the baby of the committee, and and sadly, Chris Ross died of a heroin overdose in 1970. Amazing lost talent. And there's some people in the community kind of put that on John Brent for being the person who introduced the hard drugs to Chris Ross, and that was a really hard schism in the company. And you know, it's something that John Brent really felt very strongly uh, that that weight of blame that was put on him. He ran for uh, mayor of San Francisco in 1971 uh, in a satirical run for mayor where he had like a seven point plan just as there are seven hills in San Francisco yeah, it's a seven point plan and we have his seven plan and it's amazing it talks about like a precursor like carbon offsets a pay as you pollute plan um, his main uh, catchphrase was uh, anything you want form anything you want and so that got a lot of press all over the nation that it was hilarious that this politician this guy running for mayor wants to just give us anything you want so john brent you know after that run for mayor in 71 he was really part of the committee crew that closed the theater down in 72 he was kind of there for the last stand after a lot of the theater a lot of performers of the committee had gone down to la and and started getting their careers going john brent really saw the theater through and then went down to la and then he had a bunch of work on sitcoms like many of them did like they were all in like laverne and shirley and uh, i think he was probably on wkrp because half of the committee was john brent ultimately died i believe of a heart attack in uh 85 he he died alone he was found by gary goodrow he was it was kind of tragic i think it was and so it was kind of and he was just so well loved i mean there are people in the committee there are some rivalries or different casts there are people in the committee who barely even met each other because they're different casts or in different 
cities in San Francisco or L.A. John Brent was universally loved. And so it was it hit the community really hard when he went. He perished. He just uh, discoverated. Yeah, it was. Uh... Oh, God, I'm getting misty. He, it, I, I miss him so. In the next episode, Wavy moves to Los Angeles. Uh, Lenny had become my manager. Along with cavorting with all sorts of famous comedy icons and movie stars. I was uh, living on Lemon Grove with the great Del Close. Wavy meets his wife of over 50 years. Jahanara had opened this amazing restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. Plus the world-famous acid tests with Ken Kesey and the Grateful Dead. Can you pass the acid test? And the formation of the hog farm commune. Tiny and I went down to feed the pigs. Tiny says, what an unusual situation. (laughs) Wavy bangs his cane when he laughs. By the way, his cane is named Virgil Kane, after a character in the song The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down by the band, covered by Wavy's pal, Joan Sebaez. American Prankster is executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry Engerge, a brilliant God and Company, Thessaly Lerner, Rainbow Valentine, Sunshine Keezy, and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode 4, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner, with original music by Will Collins, Hope for a Golden Summer, Gabby Lala, Paul Holman, and Sun Vo. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher, narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Associate producers are Sage Lee and Brian Slusher, Trina Calderon, Zappo Dickinson, Jundid Sykes, Johanna Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Paisano. Special thanks to the producers of the committee, The Secret History of American Comedy, Jamie Wright and Sam Shaw. Plus, thanks to our episode four guests, Sam Shaw, Jeremy Paz, Larry Hankin, Kathy Mason-Lerner, Denise Kaufman, and Laura Foster-Corbin. Plus, appreciation to all the Do-Re-Mi budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listener, and the incomparable Wavy Gravy. For more info, go to wavygravy.net or rainbowvalentine.com. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun. <laughs> thanks for listening. Buckle up for episode five. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.